to a Hope 103.2 podcast. Last time we started to look at what the Bible has to say about the afterlife. And basically we saw that the Bible promises the resurrection of the body. We looked at the Old Testament where it's pretty clear that the afterlife is not some ethereal spiritual reality. It is God's renewal of creation and of our bodies in it. As the book of Daniel says, chapter 12, verse 1, But at that time your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Not surprisingly, the first Christians inherited this Jewish Old Testament doctrine of a general resurrection. They did so, though, with one unexpected addition. They insisted that a specific resurrection had already taken place ahead of time. The Messiah himself had experienced the end-time resurrection within history in April AD 30. This was quite an addition. I don't think we realise today just how unexpected was the Christian claim that one man had entered the resurrection life prior to the great day of resurrection at the end of history. We could at this point focus on Jesus' teaching about the general resurrection at the end of history. Um, Matthew 22, 23-32, uh, John 5, 28-29, or this one from Luke 14, verse 13, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. But I want us to turn tonight to the Apostle Paul, who of course writes after April AD 30, and so is able to help us understand how Jesus' resurrection within history relates to the general resurrection of all of us at the end of history. Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul offers his most detailed treatment of the general resurrection. From the way he argues, it's clear that some in the church of Corinth had trouble coming to grips with the idea of the dead being raised to life at the end of time. They accepted Jesus' resurrection, of course. They just weren't so sure about the general resurrection of all at the end of history. Being Greeks, you see, many of them would have been raised to think of the afterlife as a netherworld of gods and spirits. The body is something you escape at death, according to Greek thinking. But Paul responds the way he so often responds, by brilliantly tying his fine Jewish theology to the historical realities of Jesus. In other words, he links the teaching of the Old Testament with the gospel of Christ in the new. The general resurrection at the end of time, says Paul, has been preempted and guaranteed in the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. 
There is so much we could explore in this passage, and fair dinkum, entire PhDs have been written on this section of Paul's letter. For now, though, I just want us to reflect on a couple of very simple things. Firstly, Paul describes the risen Jesus in this passage as the first fruits. This is an agricultural term for the initial produce of a coming harvest. In this context, it means that Jesus is the first indication, the inauguration, if you like, of God's great future harvest when he revives the dead and renews the creation. In Jesus' resurrection, God has demonstrated within history what the Old Testament promised he would do at the end of history. As the first fruits, Paul goes on, Jesus is also a kind of Adam figure. Verse 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Again, the apostle is operating in a thoroughly Old Testament frame of mind. According to the opening chapters of Genesis, the entire history of humanity could be observed in the story of the first human being. Adam was fashioned by the loving hands of the Creator, only to turn his back on the Almighty, preferring autonomy over relationship with the Creator. By defying his Creator, Adam kicked off sin and death. Adam's story is the story of all humanity, a point underlined by the fact that Adam in Hebrew means mankind. Paul's point in referring to this Old Testament narrative is actually pretty simple. What Adam was to this earthly kingdom, Jesus is to God's future kingdom. He is the progenitor and paradigm of a new humanity. Jesus is the original of the species, as it were, and he shapes our destiny. And that destiny is resurrection life. Verse 22 again. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Christ's resurrection, in other words, is God's guarantee, his down payment, if you like, of what he's promised to do for all of us at the end of time, the renewal of bodily life. Now, I understand this raises all sorts of questions, not the least of which is, what kind of body will we have in the resurrection? Paul preempts that question a little later in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed perhaps of wheat or of something else. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, whatever you do, don't see the word spiritual there in verse 44 and think Paul is talking about a spirit or ghost. This has nothing to do with the old mythical view of our souls floating disembodied in the presence of God. Paul, in fact, the entire Bible is adamant that whatever changes do occur at the resurrection, we will still have a body. It will be a spiritual body, says Paul. That is, it will be a body 
fully endowed with God's life-giving spirit. This bodily aspect of Christian hope is so much a part of New Testament thought that the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 can even define our future salvation as the redemption of the body. Let me read Romans 8.22. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. At the centre of Christian hope is the redemption not just of our spirits or souls, but of our bodies. What happened to Jesus will happen to all who put their hope in him. Exactly the same idea appears in the letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. What is perhaps strange to us because of the myths that have crept into modern Christian thought is basic to biblical hope. Eternal life involves a spirit-empowered bodily resurrection guaranteed by and modelled on Jesus' own glorious resurrection body. Hope 103.2 Thanks for listening.